Lord, we do confess that there are, are things we, we need to see that we cannot see. There are, there are things in your word this morning that we need to see. And so we ask that your spirit would come and would help us to lay hold of these things. Open our eyes. Help us to cling to, to what is invisible to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians 4. We're going to be continuing our intermittent sermon series through the book of 2 Corinthians. So we find ourselves in 2 Corinthians 4, and we'll be in verses 7 through 18. So go ahead and turn there, 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 7. While you turn there, I have a question. Maybe you have the same question. In fact, we've probably all had it at some point in our lives, if we've been honest. Why do Christians get melanoma? My grandfather was a pastor, and he was a missionary, and he gave his life to serve the gospel. And he got melanoma and died when I was three. I have no memories of him whatsoever. I'm not even sad to talk about him. No memories. Why does that happen? Why do Christians bury children? Why do Christians suffer multiple sclerosis? Why do Christians get in car wrecks? I mean, bad things just happen to everyone. I mean, didn't, don't we read in Ecclesiastes, it's the same for all. Death happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the unclean and the clean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one goes, so does the sinner. As it happens to the atheist, it happens to the Christian. That's just life, right? End of story. Move on. No. Don't accept that. Christian, Christianity is painfully realistic, but it isn't shallow. It isn't fatalistically unthinking about your sorrows. Press the question further. Why, if Christianity is true, are these things so? I mean, why isn't the prosperity gospel true? Why doesn't conversion come with immunity from suffering? I mean, last time we were in 2 Corinthians, in the passage just before, we saw that the gospel, the message of Jesus, has the power to overcome the activity of Satan, has the power to overcome our own spiritual blindness. The gospel shines a supernatural light that transforms hearts so that people can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is a supernatural miraculous transformation. We had gouged out our own eyes. Satan tied a burlap sack over our heads, but the gospel burns through the sack. It restores our sight, and it lets us see God. (laughs) So why? Why, if the gospel can overcome Satan and the flesh, doesn't it go farther? Why aren't we, the owners of supernatural God's sight, not also gifted supernatural immunity from everything else Satan and the world can throw at us? If God can save people from his sins, why doesn't he take them out of the world? Why not the prosperity gospel? Why do people who possess the resurrection life of Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit, get melanoma? Why are they mocked by culture? Why do they lose their jobs? Why do do they get left by spouses or abandoned by friends who need them the most? Why does God allow bad churches to flourish and Christians to be spiritually abused? seriously painfully hurt by other professing Christians. Why would God allow his people whom he loves to be afflicted and perplexed and persecuted 
and struck down. Why these jars of clay? Why wouldn't that transforming light also transform the clay into unassailable titanium to go with the inner transformation? Why doesn't conversion come with uh, immediate teleportation to heaven? Okay, well, we need evangelists. Fine. Then we leave a few of the best speakers on earth with supernatural Iron Man armor so that life can't touch them. And we beam everyone else up who believes straight to heaven. Why, why doesn't supernatural spiritual sight come packaged together with total freedom from discouragement, disease, defeat, and death? Why, if Christianity is true, do Christians suffer just like everyone else? I mean, what good does our faith really do? Well, the answer is not. It is not with the right belief, with the correct faith, you will experience worldly prosperity. Make no mistake, the prosperity gospel is a lie. Believing in Jesus does not exempt you from accidents, cancer, or grief. And in fact, believing in Jesus will bring pains that you otherwise would not experience if you didn't believe in him. I mean, we do indeed have this treasure in jars of clay. That's how the Apostle Paul starts this portion of 2 Corinthians. So we're going to read the text its entirety. So I hope you're there already. I'll read starting beginning 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In considering this text this morning, we have three aims. Three aims. The first is to clarify and really consider what does it mean to be jars of clay. I mean, so many of us know, experientially, even just in recent history, but it's still good to stare intently at the text's unflinching honesty about uh, its assessment of living the Christian life in this world and what that means. And secondly, we're going to put our afflictions into the context of God's sovereign plan for the universe. We'll see how Paul puts our afflictions into the context of God's sovereign plan for the universe. What purpose is there for suffering? And this will bleed into our third and final aim, which is considering how the text encourages us to suffer well. 
What should we do in the face of sovereignly ordained affliction? So we'll begin our meditation on the reality of the Christian life that is presented in our text. We have this treasure in jars of clay, Paul says. Now, why does Paul use this imagery that he uses in verse 7? What, does he, what does exactly does he mean when he says jars of clay? The treasure is clearly the gospel sight, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that Christians are gifted to see by mercy. Right? Paul says this treasure, focusing your mind back to those words in the immediately preceding verses. This treasure, this spiritual, supernatural sight, the gospel that we have been gifted, is contained in jars of clay, ceramics, pottery. Pottery was ubiquitous in ancient life. In fact, earthenware vessels were used for almost every aspect of daily life. You needed pottery for storage of water, wine, oil, grain. You used it to cook, to eat off of, to make lamps for light. Pottery was used for writing, keeping records. Sometimes clay tablets were shaped expressly for that purpose. I mean, that's what cuneiform writing was. It was a system of writing where you made indentations into clay. Other times, fragments of broken pots were used to write with ink or, or even just scratchings. Pottery was so common, breaking pots was also common. And rather than let the broken pieces go to waste, you'd you know, write your grocery list or make other notes with, on them. Literally, everyone needed and had pottery. And you basically touched it and used it every hour of your waking day. Pottery was both common and, relatively speaking, fragile. I mean, good pottery wouldn't break that easily, but you still ended with smash pots all the time. And when pots did break, you just tossed the pieces out on the street or out back of the home. Or you'd literally just sweep them into a corner of your house. Like, we, we can't really imagine that. But yeah, you just sweep them into the corner of the house. I mean, remember, dirt, dirt floors. And you would just slowly cover them up with more dirt as time went on. Sometimes you'd use the broken pieces as fill for construction. It was so relatively cheap to produce, you never repaired a broken jug. You just got a new jug. It was incredibly affordable. Sure, there were intricately painted, you know, vases and things that could cost more. But everyone had pottery. It was ordinary it was available, and it broke a lot. And when Paul refers to jars of clay, he is referring to this entire mortal existence, our, our entire mortal existence. It's ordinary, always there, and it breaks. He's not just talking about our bodies, though certainly our bodies are included, but everything about our life that can be called mortal. Each of our lives in its totality is a jar of clay. Most lives don't seem that special. I mean, sure, some lives seem like they have nice designs, silver paint, some fancy gloss, but most of us are unglazed commonware. And at the end of the day, all pots, fancy or mundane, crack and smash and end up swept into the street all the same. Mortal existence is like a ceramic pot. Look at the parallel descriptions of the Christian life in verses 10 and 11. Paul says, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus and always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. As you note how both times Paul says always. Again, this is, this is something that characterizes the Christian life. Paul refers to our suffering, not just to our eventual death, but to the daily reminders of death that all weakness, frustration, toil, and anger are. Our entire life is mortal, not just the end of it. Everything we do is touched by death. It's touched by futility. It's touched by weakness. We can't escape it, even on our most healthy, carefree days. 
But the Christian life is in many ways not mundane, but not, not in a positive sense. Paul also says in verse 10 that what we always carry is the death of Jesus. Here Paul's going one step further than just jar of clay. Our life is not just mortal like everyone else's. It is. But it also comes with a unique type of suffering. Paul is specifying a suffering that goes beyond just the normal mortal experience of suffering. All Christians still subject to mortal existence, but more than that, they carry the death of Jesus, which is to say they will share in the sufferings of Jesus. In other words, they, they will suffer in the same sort of ways that he suffered. Jesus suffered for righteousness' sake because the wicked delighted in shedding innocent blood. Jesus suffered as a shining light because the darkness hated the light Jesus suffered for being the very love of God which people hated and rejected. Christians won't just suffer. They will suffer like Jesus suffered. They will suffer for doing the right thing. They will suffer unjustly. And they will also suffer for their belief in and of itself, their belief in the one true God. They'll suffer because of Jesus. That's how Paul escalates the issue in verse 11. Always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. If you identify with Jesus, you will suffer for it. You will not be exempt from all the trappings of mortality, of ubiquitous clay pot life, and there will also come persecution and mocking, rejection, loss of comforts and pleasures that the rest of the world uses to inoculate itself from the fact that our whole existence is jars of clay. You will be given over to death always, regularly, suffering for Jesus, in the same ways that he did. Not exempt from mortal life, but actually stuck in a mortal life that is made more difficult because of your faith in Christ. So, sign me up. Jeremiah, this is perhaps the worst pitch for Christianity in the history of evangelism. Well, fortunately, Paul doesn't stop at verse 7. Now it's time to contextualize our afflictions in their place in God's sovereign plan. Paul does not leave us without a reason. Not a specific reason for this or that particular suffering, but an overarching reason that applies to all of our mortal existence as Christians. Look at the explicit reason Paul lays out in verse 7. We have these treasures in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The point in keeping the treasure in jars of clay, in being Christians and still getting leukemia, losing a job, breaking a femur, getting mocked at school, being put in a box in the ground, is so that it is crystal clear that the power of the Christian life belongs to God, not to us. As Paul says in verse 7, to show, to, to demonstrate, to make visible the truth that the power belongs to God. Make visible to whom? To us to the watching world, to the church, to the unbelievers, the entire cosmos, to the spirits, and all other possible witnesses you can imagine. All shall know that the power belongs to God. The way God has ordained the Christian life, the reason for Christians being clothed in painful mortality, despite their internal transformation, is so that God would receive the credit for the power of the Christian life. God is to be credited with all the power. God is to receive the thanks and the glory. As Paul says in verse 15, all this happens so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory 
of God. In other words, this way of mortality and affliction will result in more converts, will result in more thanksgiving, and thus will result in the glory of God. There is something captivating about a Christian's endurance through suffering. I think it was Tertullian who said, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. When unbelievers see Christians endure suffering, there's something persuasive about it. Indeed, in verse 12, Paul says, so death is at work in us, but life in you, meaning our suffering as apostles and ministers that you can see is how God imparts spiritual life to you who witness our suffering. That means more believers. That means more thanks, and that all works to the glory of God. The point is, this, this way of ordering the world, this mortal way that includes our affliction, gives God glory. Our mortal existence, with all its weakness and suffering, is to make clear the power of God, and this is all for the display of the glory of God. The way God has ordained the Christian life displays His power. It glorifies Him. I mean, that's one of the points of the fourfold description of Christians in verses 8 through 9. Look at verses 8 through 9. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. You know, imagine I show you like a really nice, fancy, expensive phone, all the latest hardware and software made of expensive materials, and it's set on a pedestal, and no scratches, no fingerprints, shiny and pristine, get a spotlight on it. And you reach to touch it, and I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is a very delicate, highly expensive piece. No one can touch it. And maybe you say, wow, cool certain amount of amazement that comes with that, depending on how much you care about fancy tech. But if I take that same cell phone and I chuck it against the concrete floor, then I pick it up and skid it, screen down across some asphalt, maybe hit it with a mallet, stab at the screen with a sharpened chef's knife, and then I show you no scratches, no fingerprints, still runs perfectly, still shiny and pristine. Well, that's, that's a different level of amazing. It's a different level of awesome. That's a phone. There is glory in someone not crushed, not despairing, not forsaken, and not dead. But there is greater glory that comes with afflicted, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not killed. It is more glorious for God not to exempt His children from affliction, confusion, persecution, and death, but instead to deliver them through affliction, confusion, persecution, and death. It demonstrates the power and the greatness of God that He is able to bring His children, weak as they are, through such things. Our mortal lives, our jars of clay, serve as the backdrop for the power of God to be displayed for His glory. But that still might not sit well with you. So you're telling me, that God ordains for me to suffer, to make him look good, for him to show off. How is that comfort? How is that for me? I mean, that's what Paul says in, in verse 15. He says, all this suffering is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. It's all for your sake to the glory of God. It's all for your sake because this increases thanksgiving to the glory of God. It's all for my sake that these afflictions happen so that God would be glorified. 
Well, but how does that work? What do you mean, Paul? How is this for me if it is ultimately for God's glory? Why is God's glory good news to me? Why am I still afflicted, confused, persecuted, and killed? Because God being glorified is more, it's a, God being glorified is about more than just the bare display. Sometimes that's how we talk. It's for the display of his glory, and that's right. It's true. But more than just the, what is conveyed by the word display, displaying the glory, for God to be glorified in Scripture is for God's glory to be experienced. And glory is something experienced. There's, there's no glory without an audience. That's one of the reasons why God has eternally been glorious as a trinity, the Godhead within himself, eternally having an audience for his glory. Glory is something that you experience. And you can think of glory on a spectrum. All glory is experienced. It has to be seen and savored. But sometimes our experience of glory is, is more on the passive end of the spectrum. Kind of like if you're, you look at a painting in the museum or even read a good book. I mean, even passively speaking, right? The glory of a, a painting or reading a good book. I mean, it's a wonderful feeling, isn't it? To, to, to see passively and experience that glory. It's enjoyable to partake of glory even when we're just spectators. We understand this. That's why even though I don't watch any sports and I can still watch sport highlights and be amazed and enjoy it. You can do it without even knowing all the rules because you can see the glory in the skill and precision, the athleticism and strategy. It's enjoyable to spectate glory. The more glorious something is, the more enjoyable it is to see the glory. So the greater the glory, the greater the enjoyment comes from just being a witness to it. Seeing the glory of God and its awesome display will bring satisfaction. However, not all glory is passive. Not all glory is experienced solely as a spectator. Watching a sports team pull off an amazing victory, seeing that glory can be joyful. But how much more glorious is being on the sports team and being part of the victory. That's, that's a whole different type of glory. You were still a spectator to it, but now you're also a participant to it. I mean, looking at a beautiful pastry or a perfectly plated gourmet dinner is one thing, but biting into it, tasting it, savoring it, enjoying it, that doesn't even compare with just looking. It's the difference in experience between sitting on the shore, watching a 15-foot-tall, majestic, beautiful, crystal-clear, sky-blue wave crash against the beach in Hawaii, and the adrenaline-fueled joy of giddily surfing those majestic waves. You see, God doesn't seek glory and praise just to receive something from you. He does it to give something to you. God isn't seeking passive praise through your sufferings. He's inviting you to participate in eternal pleasure by giving you himself. God doesn't ordain history to include our suffering so that you can sit on the shore looking at the majestic waves. He does it so that you can surf them. Look at verse 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There is glory for us. We will be glorified. There is glory coming for God's people. Paul calls his suffering, which was anything but small, right? If you remember Paul's story, his suffering was not small, but he calls his suffering light and momentary. I mean, he doesn't minimize his sufferings, but he, he does contextualize them. 
compared to what is coming for me, for Paul the Apostle, this is nothing. This suffering is nothing compared with the glory that is coming, a glory for us. And this isn't like in the case of, well, at least you get something good afterwards, like when the kid gets a lollipop after the dentist. And there wasn't really a logical connection between the lollipop and the dentist. No, this, this, this is suffering that comes, this is, or this is glory that comes through the suffering. This is a glory that we would not otherwise receive if not going through the suffering. This light momentary affliction is preparing, verse 17, the, the, the affliction is doing something. It is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. And the reason suffering is preparing the eternal weight of glory for us is precisely because this suffering, as we've said, serves to magnify, display, facilitate our experience of God's glory. Because the suffering better displays God's glory, it increases our glory. Because the glory prepared for us, as we see throughout Paul's letters, is the experience of God's glory manifested to us. The same way God is more glorified through suffering, we are more glorified through suffering because our glory is the experience of God's glory. The eternal weight of glory that God has for his people can only be experienced through suffering, which will literally make it all worth it. In displaying the greatness of his power for his own glory in your affliction, confusion, persecution, and death, God invites you to participate in, to experience, and to enjoy his glory. God invites you to experience the glory of the one who created all glorious things. The glory of the inventor of every pleasure, from chocolate to marriage to children to food to art. The glory of the author of salvation, almighty father, wonderful counselor, prince of peace, the sender of Jesus, the architect of the cross, the one behind the resurrection, the glory of that all-surpassing mind and power, God's glory, he invites his people to partake of and to enjoy. Now, this, It doesn't mean that we will always or maybe even mostly understand why or how this all works together. But it does mean that we can trust. We can trust that our affliction, confusion, persecution, and death will result in greater joy for us than if we weren't afflicted, confused, persecuted, and killed. Because our suffering grants us a greater experience of God himself. The point is not just this way makes God look more glorious. The point is that in God being more glorified, you get a greater experience and pleasure in God. You get more of his glory this way. You get a better view and experience of the glory of God. You know, this, this dual emphasis on God's glory and our glory appears in all of Paul's letters. You do a little search and look up all the times Paul uses the glory word family, almost 80 of them. Most of the time, he's either talking about God as inherently and surpassingly glorious, or he's talking about the purpose of salvation and all of creation ultimately being for the display of God's glory, or he's talking about the glory that God prepares for his people to enjoy. God's people will be glorified, he said in 2 Thessalonians. God called you to faith so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians, all this God decreed before the ages for our glory. In Colossians, Paul says of Jesus' second coming, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 
That's why Paul says in Romans, we rejoice. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We are so looking forward to God being glorified. He says later on, we will suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In fact, there's a strong parallel to our passage in Romans 8 where he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The whole creation is waiting for the glory of the children of God to be revealed. The glory of God's people enjoying and participating in his own glory. We could spend the whole day meditating about any of these passages, or indeed the rest of the week if we wanted to expand our consideration of the Old Testament, particularly the prophets. Consider just one, just one passage from the end of Zephaniah, an oracle that almost sounds irreverent and impossible if it wasn't in the very inspired word of God. Looking forward to that final day, the prophet writes, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. In that day, God will sing over you. I don't care what conference or concert or choir you've heard. You want to hear glorious singing? Wait until you hear the joyful, loud singing of God over his people. Our future is a glorious one. It is a glory that will only be possible, even if we don't always understand why, but it will only be possible because of our sufferings. This life may indeed be a jar of clay, but there is treasure inside it. There is treasure. There is treasure in this mortal existence. Being able to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ now through faith, now, present tense, believing in Jesus, that's a treasure, that's a gift. It's a gift because it leads to the eternal weight of glory that God has prepared for us, his own glory. I mean, no one wants affliction, confusion, persecution, and death. I don't want affliction, confusion, and persecution, and death. But oh, oh, even though it is often hard, we, we can see it, at least in part, we can see the power and glory of God in the MS patient evangelizing their neighbor even while it hurts to stand. We can see it in the grieving widower when nothing in the world makes sense praying for the strength to get out of bed. We can see it in the Middle Eastern Christian resolute and unafraid the moment before they are beheaded. We could see it in the young mom dying of cancer, using those few fleeting moments of strength in her last weeks to sing hymns with her children and teach them Bible stories. It is through these things that the life of Jesus is manifested, that it appears that we're able to see it, just in part, during this life. Twice, Paul says in verse 10 and 11, 
We're always carrying the body of death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested, visible in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. The quality of Jesus' life, his resurrection life, the life that he gifts his followers cannot be displayed on Instagram. No amount of filters, professional lighting, proper staging, or Photoshop will capture the life of Christ in believers. Rather, it is on display as it works powerfully in the lives of people who are afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. All these things display the resurrection life of Jesus. They make clear his power. They give God glory and therefore prepare an eternal weight of glory for you. And oh, though we may wish not to have to go through them, if you belong to Jesus, he will indeed preserve you through affliction, confusion, persecution, and death. You will be struck down but not killed. I mean, to be struck down means to be killed. I mean, it's what struck down means. Struck down means killed. Paul says struck down but not killed. He doesn't just mean like punched. I mean, he means stabbed, dead, but not dead. In other words, Christians die without dying. They suffer physical death, but in a way that doesn't kill them, that doesn't separate them from the life and love of God. Listen, if you are not connected to Jesus Christ by faith, then death is the end for you. Not of existence, there is an afterlife, but there is no future glory for you. Death is the end of the life and love of God, which you enjoy now, in part, even if you don't believe. You enjoy the goodness of God right now. Every good in this world is from God, who created this world good, who is the source of life and goodness. But if you die in your sins, continue in rejection to Christ. If you reject his offer of mercy, his call to repent, his offer and his command to repent of your sins, you will be separated from his goodness forever when you die. At that point, you will know the just anger and wrath of God. But if right now you see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, then you will die, but not be separated from the life and love of God. You will experience more than you already experience it now. And that heavenly experience of God is just the pit stop. You will participate in the recreation of all things, a new physical universe with a new resurrected body. As Paul says in verse 14, He who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with him and bring us with you into his presence. We will all be raised together from the dead to enjoy a new heavens and a new earth in which God's glory will dwell more present than even when he dwelt in the temple and men couldn't enter. We will surf the waves of God's glory in a new existence, and we have no idea what that will look like. I mean, the new creation will display God's glory more than anything we could possibly imagine now, and therefore it will be an experience of and participation in something more glorious and pleasurable than anything we could possibly imagine now. I mean, we literally cannot picture it. That's what gets us through the affliction in the present, keeping our eyes on, as strange as it sounds, the things that we cannot see. Paul says in verse 16 that in the face of our suffering, we do not lose heart, and we do that, in verse 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, 
but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's faith, looking forward to future glory, looking to things that are unseen, right? And what an interesting turn of phrase. Looking at things that cannot be seen, looking at things that cannot be looked at. How do you look at something that you cannot look at? You still have to look. And the reason we can't see the unseen things is not because, well, there's no way we can know about them, right? That's the way atheists like to caricature faith. Faith is believing without evidence. You can't see it. You just have to take it on blind faith. That's not what Paul means when he says the eternal things are unseen. We have lots of evidence of future glory. No, faith is believing in things we cannot see because right now they are beyond our capacity to see or even fully conceive. We have lots of evidence of future glory. It's just going to be so glorious when it actually gets here that we can't really imagine it now. It's like electrons, protons, neutrons, all the subatomic particles. We can't see those things. I mean, not even with the world's most powerful microscope. We can't really see them. We just, we can conceive them. We can make models of how they must work based on experimental mathematical evidence. But we can really only dimly imagine them. They're just beyond our resources to experience directly. The glory of Jesus Christ when he returns and the glory of the new creation, the display of God's glory in that new creation, the very same glory that he invites all of us to participate in and to enjoy is beyond the current capacities of our imagination, beyond our current ability to experience directly. But we can know that our sufferings now are preparing us for that future experience. And part of the reason we have the treasures in jars of clay is so that we never get distracted away from the ultimate prize. Nothing we can produce, manufacture, or will in our own power and flesh is going to be an eternally satisfying treasure the way the experience of God's glory will be. One of the reasons we continue in this mortal life is so that we and the whole watching cosmos will always know this fact. You, you know the, the container store? I think the container store. I think the container store is existentially, philosophically speaking, the most disappointing store in the universe. And I, I love the container store, but it is a store full of cool containers with nothing in them. And you go there and you get excited about the containers. The way God has set up the Christian life makes it impossible for you to mistake the container for the treasure. This mortal life is not the treasure. It's just the container holding the treasure. But what is inside, what is not yet seen, is far more valuable than the container itself. What God has prepared for us in our afflictions is far more valuable than anything in this mortal life, than this mortal life in its totality. And so holding on to Christ, the hope of glory, looking forward to the full display of God's glory, we don't lose hope as we look to things we cannot yet see because of how glorious they are. So the way we look at those things that we cannot yet see is that we look at the evidence. I said there's lots of evidence of our future glory. And so we look towards that future glory by looking at the evidence of the future glory that God has given us. We look at the person and work of Jesus Christ. We keep our eyes on the gospel in Jesus, right? In, in the whole of salvation history, in all of the Bible, which culminates and centers around the full revelation of God in the person of Jesus, Messiah and the Christ. In all this, God displays his glory. As Paul said just a few verses earlier, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We can look at Jesus. 
In the gospel, we see the evidence of our future hope, as well as little bits of a foretaste of it. We can't see it, we can't imagine it, but in the gospel, we can see the proof of it. When we read the scriptures, when we look at Jesus, we look towards something that we cannot fully conceive, the glorification of creation and the return of Jesus and the resurrection of his saints. We do not know what that will be like, but we know it is coming and we get little tastes of it when we look at Jesus in the Bible. Finally, in our remaining time, consider how our text encourages us to respond in the midst of afflictions. You'll notice, if you've been paying attention, that we've skipped over verse 13. I wanted to end here because of the practical application, but do still see the, the logical ordering. When Paul begins his mini-conclusion in verse 16, when he says, so we do not lose heart, he's basing that on the exhortation to look to the, he's basing that exhortation to look to the unseen things on what he said moments ago, starting here in verse 13. So in order to fully appreciate how we ought to look to Christ in the midst of affliction, we have to consider verse 13, where Paul says, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. As mentioned, Paul's quoting from Psalm 116. That's why we read the whole thing earlier. Now, good rule, good Bible interpretation rule. Whenever the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament, you will often find that the New Testament author intends for you to have the whole passage in mind. He's not interested just in those words, but he wants you to draw your mind back to the Old Testament book where that came from, or the chapter in question. In this case, Paul intends for you to bring Psalm 116 to mind, not just this isolated quote. So just as a reminder, we read it earlier, but Psalm 116 is all about prayer, specifically petition, crying out to God for help calling on his name in the midst of trouble. In verses 3 through 4, the psalmist wails of Psalm 116, The snares of death surrounded me. The pangs of the grave laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. See, verse 4 defines what the psalmist means all throughout the song by calling on the name of the Lord. It is calling out for help, screaming, Deliver my soul! Help me! And then in verses 5 through 9, the psalmist recounts that Yahweh, the Lord God, did deliver him. God answered his cries for help. And that's when we come to verse 10, which is what Paul quotes. So zero in on verse 10. We are. Paul quotes the first line of verse 10, but look at the whole of verse 10. I believed, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. Now, if you happen to be in the ESV of Psalm 116, verse 10 reads a little differently in the main text. It says, I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. Now, that little word even makes it sound like there's something of a contrast between believing and the speaking that the psalmist has in mind. Even when I spoke, I still believed, like they don't go together necessarily. But that even is an unnecessary interpretive leap. Your ESV footnote provides alternate ways to take the underlying Hebrew. And the Greek translation of the Old Testament makes it clear that the point is not opposition. Don't let it sound like opposition. The point is coherence. I believed, therefore I spoke. It was because I believed that I spoke. 
Paul's quotation in our passage reads the same. It is explicitly clear the connection between the believing and the speaking is one of cause and effect. The faith causes the words that come out of my mouth. And look at what speaking, what sort of speaking believing causes in verse 10 of Psalm 116. I believed, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. Believing results in crying out. I'm afflicted. Believing results in crying out. Help me. Paul says, since we have the same spirit of faith as the psalmist who said, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. In other words, we also believe in God and so we also should cry out, I am afflicted. Help me. That God ordains our afflictions and our sufferings does not mean we are stoically and emotionlessly fatalists. Part of how our jars of clay demonstrate God's power is they are the occasion for us to cry out to him. That is indeed part of our worship, part of the way we honor him, part of the way his glory is displayed. We ask him for help. Indeed, petitioning God is part of our worship. I mean, we, we do it in the worship service. We have a prayer where we ask God for things. And notice how the psalmist continues in 116, because you remember, at this point, at verse 10, the psalmist is speaking from a place of having experienced an answer to prayer. Right? He's, he's already been delivered, and he's reflecting back when he says, I trusted God, so I cried out to him for help, in verse 10. And then he breaks into a doxology in verses 11 through 13. He says, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Like Looking back, he saved me. What? What should I do to repay God for answering all my prayers? That's the question. How should I respond to his deliverance? And the answer in the next verse is astounding. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will lift up the cup, meaning I will celebrate, and then I will call on the name of the Lord, meaning I will ask him for more help. The psalmist says it again in verse 17, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. Because God delivered me, I'm going to thank him and honor him by crying out to him to do it again. That's what faith does. And indeed, for Paul, the par excellence example of this crying out for salvation is the crying out for the salvation of future glory because of God's past salvation accomplished on the cross of Christ. It's Paul, that's, that's Paul's logic. If we have truly experienced justification, forgiveness from our sins, imputation of Christ's righteousness, then in our afflictions we should cry out for future glory. Because we have believed that Jesus died to pay the penalty from our sins, that the wrath of God has been satisfied, because we believe God himself provided a ransom, because we believe that we stand righteous before him on the basis of Jesus' life, because we believe in this past tense salvation finished on the cross, we can plead and we should plead our afflictions. Jesus, help us. How shall we repay the Lord for sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins? What shall we render to Yahweh for this great benefit to the church? Let us celebrate and plead our afflictions to him. Help us. We are afflicted. We've got melanoma. We don't know where our food is coming from next week. We don't know how to function. Everything hurts every day. 
We're so afraid that if we confess the sinfulness of homosexuality with the scriptures that we're going to lose our jobs. Lord Jesus, help us. Help me. Come. Bring the consummation of all things. Deliver me from this body of death. Save us. That's how we worship. That's part of how we look to the unseen glorious future that belongs to us. We believe it. And so we cry out for help in our suffering. We cry out for help in our suffering in light of our unseen glorious future. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you ordain all things for your glory. We do thank you, even though it is difficult to, we thank you for ordaining history in such a way that includes our afflictions and our sufferings because we can trust in faith that this means you will be more glorified and so our experience and knowledge, enjoyment of you will be all the more. We thank you for not leaving us in meaningless afflictions but using them to prepare an eternal weight of glory for us. And so I ask now that you would help us to believe this. Help us to believe that this is true, to cry out to you in response. We ask this all in Jesus' name, towards his glory. Amen.